Retrogram, Revisiting TV Futures from the Past. An examination of yesteryear's television science fiction, fantasy, spy-fi, horror, and superhero shows. Commencing Retrogram. Number 7348, The Saturday Morning Spectacular, the week of November 25, 1973. Welcome to Retrogram, the podcast that picks a week between 1970 and 1990, gives all of that week's sci-fi, superhero, fantasy, and horror shows a fresh watch, and tries to find out if those shows have aged well. Actually, given that we're halfway through 2020, I wonder if any of us have aged well, but hey, enough about now. Let's talk about then. The week of November 25th, 1973 wasn't terribly eventful. The Senate confirmed Gerald Ford as the new Vice President of the United States, ending a two-month vacancy created by the resignation of the previous VP, Spiro Agnew. Of course, what they didn't realize, or actually what they may have realized all too well since the Watergate cover-up was in full swing by now, was that they were basically electing the next president without it ever going to a public vote. Just the previous week, President Nixon had made headlines with his infamous statement, I am not a crook. Elsewhere, at a much higher altitude than Washington, the third and final crew of the Skylab space station was settling into their new orbiting home, and the first close-up photos of the planet Jupiter were just days away from being taken by Pioneer 10. The Who's Quadrophenia tour was in full swing, despite Keith Moon passing out on stage the first night, and the Charlie Brown Thanksgiving special aired for the first time on the 20th of November the previous week. This retrogram focuses not just on the week of the 25th, but almost exclusively on one day. With a single exception, all of the shows in this week's retrogram landed on a Saturday. But that doesn't mean they were all cartoons. Robert's Robots, Series 1, Episode 3, A Spanner in the Works, aired on TAMS Television Monday, November 26, 1973. The story so far. Eccentric inventor Robert Summerby designs and builds robots, some of them smarter than others. And this has brought him to the attention of the British government, as well as earning some research grant money from them. But Robert's robots are more advanced than anyone else's. He's programmed them to feel emotions. Strong but somewhat slow robot Katie, named after his model number initials, and somewhat more advanced Eric are just inquisitive enough to get into trouble. Mr. Gimble, a private investigator, is constantly trying to get a look at Robert's robots so he can gather information for his employer, Mr. Markin, an industrial spy with a heavy foreign accent. A Spanner in the Works Gimble is outside, spying on Robert's lab through his binoculars yet again. Only this time, his employer is present in person. Mr. Markin has arrived, spouting theories that the legs they recently saw sticking out of the back of Robert's car 
were once part of another industrial spy. Markin excitedly suggests that Robert is doing away with his competitors violently. Gimbel's not buying it until he climbs up and peeks into the lab window where he sees Robert torturing somebody. Well, actually, no, that's just what he thinks he sees. What he actually sees is Robert unscrewing one of the legs from a new robot while the radio is tuned into a dramatic old-time radio show. Gimbel scurries away as Eric the robot storms into the lab. He's upset with Robert's newest inventions, the maintenance robot and the sanitary robot. One of them tried to wash Aunt Millie's car in the kitchen sink, while the other helpfully fixed Eric's speech circuit, relieving him of the ability to say the word no. After things quiet down, Gimbel sneaks into the lab, finding the robot he assumed was a man being tortured, but he doesn't get any useful information out of him. In Aunt Millie's house, Robert listens as his aunt also complains about the maintenance and sanitary robots. They're making life more difficult for her as she tries to prepare a dinner party to celebrate Robert's recent engagement. She heads off to the local domestic agency to hire kitchen help for the day, but she instead encounters Mr. Gimble pretending to be a man looking for casual work. He's also using this disguise to do further spying on the lab, where he sees Robert disassembling another robot and now Mr. Gimble is feeling some fear and starts to panic. He keeps overhearing conversations about robots, but Gimble doesn't know that Robert builds robots, so every conversation about fixing someone, or shutting them down, or putting someone out of action, sounds to Mr. Gimble like a threat. He's cornered by the sanitary robot, who he assumes is going to kill him, and he runs for his life, getting off of the property as quickly as he can. He thinks he's had a close call, but it's all been a bit of a misunderstanding. Dinner goes on without him. The End Robert's Robots is a bizarre little sitcom that simultaneously seems too silly for grown-ups and yet a little too grown-up for kids. It's hard to get a fix on who the intended audience was, really. I do like the theme song, though. It's almost like early chiptune, though the reality of it is it's early synthesizer with a few offbeat conventional instruments. Best line in the show goes to Mr. Markin for saying, Mr. Gamble, you're gimbling with death. Mr. Markin's backward English is a running gag throughout the show that sometimes tries a little too hard to draw attention to itself. This one, however, was just perfect rapid-fire delivery. You, you know, I actually believed that someone could get those two words mixed up. Robert's Robots was created and written by Bob Block. Block was a veteran-like comedy writer who had written tons of episodes of Cracker Jack, in addition to his own creation the previous year, Pardon My Genie. He had also written for Dave Allen at Large, Ken Dodd and the Diddy Men, Hey Presto, It's Rolf, and Life with the Lions. Robert's Robots lasted two seasons of seven episodes each, but Bob Black would go on to score a bigger hit with Rent-A-Ghost, which premiered in 1976 and ran through 1980. We lost Bob in 2011. John Clive stars as Robert Summerby. John was a veteran of the UK TV guest starring circuit, but was also seen in movies such as A Clockwork Orange and The Pink Panther Strikes Again, The Italian Job, and several of the carry-on movies of the 1970s. John Clive was also the voice of the cartoon version of John Lennon in the Beatles animated Yellow Submarine movie.
We've discussed Nigel Pegram before when he turned up in The Tomorrow People, an ITV series of roughly the same vintage as Robert's Robots. He was a regular on this show as Eric, the most human of Robert's creations. Oddly missing from this episode, however, is the late Brian Coburn as Katie, a hulking robot named after the initials of his model number, and note, his model number. There's dialogue early in the show about why Katie is missing, though it's a very different show without its most visually striking character. This was the only episode of Robert's Robots that Brian did not appear in as Katie. Welsh actor Richard Davies is Mr. Gimble. This was a rare role for Davies in that it didn't really hinge on racial or class stereotypes of Welshness. Mr. Gimble was Welsh, but his hailing from Wales was not the butt of repeated jokes or mentions. Richard also appeared in The Saint, Dixon of Dock Green, Please Sir, Coronation Street, Faulty Towers, Yes Minister, and Whoops Apocalypse. He appeared as the hard-of-hearing Mr. Burton in a three-part Doctor Who story in 1987, Delta and the Bannerman. Alzheimer's disease claimed Richard Davies in 2015 at the age of 89. Robert's Robots is good harmless fun, with almost the entirety of the humor arising from the fact that the self-styled industrial espionage experts spying on Robert have no idea what he's really doing, and naturally draw all the wrong conclusions from evidence they have wildly misinterpreted. The show ran for 14 episodes, and honestly, that was just about enough to wear out the joke. Super Friends, Season 1, Episode 13, The Mysterious Moles, aired Saturday morning, December 1st, 1973, on ABC. The story so far, Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman, Aquaman. You think they just hang out at the Batcave or the Fortress of Solitude or Steve Trevor's office all the time? Nope. These founding members of the Justice League of America hang out at the Hall of Justice waiting for the Troubler to ring. And when they swing into action, well, they have some superheroes in training tagging along, namely Wendy, Marvin, and Wonder Dog. The Mysterious Moles Wendy, Marvin, and Wonder Dog are taking a bike ride when Wonder Dog finds a set of tracks. Marvin says they look like giant chicken tracks. They lean their bikes up against rocks and a tree to investigate, but when they return, their bikes have been moved. Or was it the rocks and the tree that moved? They return to the Hall of Justice to alert the Super Friends to this strange occurrence, but Superman is more concerned with the wave of air conditioner thefts. Entire air conditioning units have been removed from large factory buildings. Batman and Robin take Wendy, Marvin, and Wonder Dog back to where they were, but now the rocks and the tree are gone. There was a building nearby the whole time, though, so Batman rings the doorbell. Maybe whoever lives in this house saw something. And who lives there is Mr. and Mrs. Maximus Mole. They're annoyed at the intrusion. Batman takes the hint and takes the kids, Wonder Dog and Robin, back to the Hall of Justice, which means they don't see Mr. Mole summon a walking tree and a rolling rock who are carrying one of the missing air conditioners. Kind of an odd thing for a tree and a rock to do, if you think about it, but okay. 
Back at the Hall of Justice, another air conditioning unit has been stolen, this time from a government medical research lab. And when it's added to a map showing the other air conditioner thefts, the place where Wendy and Marvin went biking is very close to all of the places that now have missing air conditioning units. The kids go back only to find that the house is now missing, replaced by a service station in the exact same place, the Min and Max Trucking Company. They walk in and find a large empty building with a big switch on the wall. Pressing the switch rotates the whole building, which looks like a service station on one side and the mole's house on the other. Oh, and in one corner of the building, the missing two-ton air conditioning units. How did those get here? As Wendy and Marvin try to follow those giant chicken tracks, Batman and Robin check out the government lab and find no evidence of the kind of heavy machinery it would have taken to pull the air conditioning unit off the roof. Wendy and Marvin have followed the tracks to an uprooted tree, but under that tree is something like a tunnel or a cave? Aquaman at the Hall of Justice looks up information on Mr. and Mrs. Mole, finding that they're renowned cave explorers who have spent their lives looking for a legendary bottomless cave. Wendy and Marvin seem to have found it, though, and they see Mr. and Mrs. Mole exploring the cave and talking about exploring Molesville, which supposedly is full of diamonds. The super friends, except for Superman, set out to check on Wendy and Marvin, who still haven't returned. Superman, in the meantime, stakes out the large air conditioning unit on the roof of the nearby power plant because he has a feeling it'll be the next target. Mr. and Mrs. Mole return from the cave in a vehicle with a huge drill on the front. Mr. Mole has a container of special water from Molesville that makes trees and rocks able to follow human instructions. He orders a tree and a rock to load the air conditioning units into their vehicle to take underground. Batman, Robin, Aquaman, and Wonder Woman discover the rotating building and the path to the underground cave. They finally catch up with Wendy and Marvin, who have discovered Molesville and its river, the source of Mr. Mole's special water, which means the trees and rocks here can move. And there are diamonds, lots of diamonds. The moles want to cool the caves so they can mine diamonds and get rich. Mr. and Mrs. Mole appear and order the rocks and trees to attack the super friends, but they've been followed by Superman. They're cornered, and the super friends decide to seal off this amazing underground world so no one else will try to exploit it. The end. Okay, so about that medical research lab whose air conditioning unit gets stolen. Apparently, due to a forecast of a worldwide epidemic the following winter, the lab is already working on a vaccine. I, I watched that little piece of information wistfully, thinking, oh, if only that's how it worked. I, I got a chuckle out of Aquaman pronouncing spelunkers, spelunkers. Now, there's an undersea creature in Molesville that Aquaman has to tame, and uh, it, it looks like a yellow Wobbuffet. It looks like someone took the Pokemon character Wobbuffet and painted it yellow from head to toe. Uh, and uh, an another Aquaman thing that made me laugh, this line, Yes, I can speak to you telepathically. Except he uses his mouth to say that. <laughs> I'm waiting for yellow Wobbuffet to say, Hey, prove it. Now, Robin asks, you know, can you imagine the confusion if rocks and trees were moving around on their own on Earth, meaning at ground level instead of in Molesville? Is he right about that, though? It, it, would that really be a source of confusion? 
are the rocks and trees on the surface of the earth being denied their freedom? It's kind of a weird question, but it's also dismissed a little too quickly. If it doesn't hurt the trees or the rocks at ground level to move around, why should they be denied the ability to sample a little of that water if they want to move around on their own? Then again, if they don't naturally have that ability, uh, look, I know this isn't the Star Trek cartoon, we're going to get to that in a little bit, but it's kind of like a prime directive question from Star Trek. Would it be interfering with the evolution of trees and with the existence of rocks that don't move around to suddenly give them that ability? On the surface, this seems like a, you know, it might be a sillier than usual Super Friends story, but it touches on the idea of exploiting lands untouched by human hands and possibly exploiting people as well, since the trees and rocks were being maneuvered into committing crimes. So, yeah, maybe don't exploit places or people or trees or rocks. Valuable lesson there. The Star Lost, Episode 11, The Astromedics, aired on Saturday, December 1st, in syndication in the United States and on CTV in Canada. The story so far. Devon is a curious young man in a simple Amish-like society called Cypress Corners, questioning some elements of his community's religious teachings, a crime that has gotten him banished at least once before. The community elders in the tradition of their simple agrarian society consult the computer to determine Devon's fate, and the computer responds by declaring Devon's betrothal to a young woman named Rachel, null and void. She is instead to marry Garth, a young local blacksmith. On the run from his own neighbors, Devon escapes through a metal doorway and finds himself in an alien world of metal, where he too can ask questions of the computer. He learns that Cypress Corners is an artificial environment, just one of dozens of biospheres attached to Earthship Ark, a flying representative cross-section of Earth life and civilizations launched to preserve something of that doomed planet's history and life forms in the year 2285. A disaster along the way killed the crew maintaining Earthship Ark, and it has gone off course and has been adrift for many hundreds of years, much longer than intended. No one aboard Earthship Ark knows how to fly it or change its course, and now the massive ship and every equally unaware member of every civilization preserved aboard it is on a collision course with a star, which could take place in weeks, months, maybe years. Devon returns to Cypress Corners, discovering that his elders have pronounced him dead. He challenges the very foundations of their religion and escapes with Rachel into the corridors of the ship to prove to her that he's telling the truth. Garth pursues them, intent on rescuing Rachel and doing away with Devon as his elders command, only to discover the truth for himself. Now the three refugees from Cypress Corners explore the other biospheres on Earthship Ark, hoping to find someone who might help them change the Ark's course before all of its societies are destroyed. The Astromedics As Devon, Rachel, and Garth explore more parts of the Ark, Garth wanders into something labeled a sonic chamber and is immediately assailed by sound and pulsating lights. When Devon rushes into that chamber to save Garth, he gets an even bigger dose of the light show and falls unconscious. Rachel brings the omnipresent sphere host up on a screen and requests medical help, and to her and Garth's surprise, help does arrive by way of a red, ambulance-like spacecraft. 
Medical personnel pour into the room, load Devon onto a stretcher, and with Garth and Rachel bringing up the rear, they bring him to Medical Module 7. These first responders come from the medical biosphere, which is an entire biosphere devoted to caring for people injured anywhere else in the Ark. Well, at least people who know they're actually on a giant spaceship loaded with different biospheres. The two main doctors are a father and a headstrong son, though the junior of the two seems to be making a career out of reminding his dad that, hey, you're old, your hands are unsteady, you're no good as a doctor anymore. The diagnosis for Devon is pretty grim, but the younger doctor is distracted by another emergency call, this time from aliens. That's way more exciting than some backward hillbilly who barely knows he's on a spaceship. The aliens, after all, may be able to help change the Ark's course and save everybody. Surely that's more important than just Devon's life. Garth and Rachel are horrified, but they're powerless to do anything. Anything, that is, except talk, trying to sway the medical staff over to helping save Devon's life. Garth manages to bring Medical Module 7 to a stop in space, insisting that Devon's life comes first. The older doctor decides to perform the necessary surgery on Devon, and Garth relinquishes control of the ship. Communication with the aliens includes medical information that's nearly incomprehensible. Their physiology is, well, alien. As it turns out, the wrong doctors are working on the wrong cases. The more experienced elder doctor should be communicating with the aliens, and the younger one should be operating on Devon. So they swap places. There's tense, tearful waiting, lots of medical jargon and terminology, and not so much as a single surgical mask or glove in sight. There's also a lot of worry that Garth's stopping the ship may have cost enough fuel that Medical Module 7 won't be able to return to the Ark. Fortunately, the aliens' medical issues are sorted out by a remote diagnosis. It's not a virus. They're reptiles, and space is cold. Ha! <laughs> Silly reptile people. In exchange for the diagnosis of their problem, the aliens help boost Medical Module 7 back toward the Ark, but that's the only help offered. The Ark is still on its collision course with the star. Devon makes a full recovery, but he's still going to need time to rest. And as for the astromedics... They have an emergency call from another biosphere on the Ark. So off they go. The end. Special guest star. This episode claims to have a special guest star. And it's Stephen Young as the junior Dr. Trask. Born in Canada, Stephen had been in such TV series as Seaway, Judd for the Defense, and in the movies he was in The President's Analyst, Patton, and Soylent Green. He would go on to play the same character in both The Six Million Dollar Man and The Bionic Woman. He was also in Airwolf, Hunter, Murder, She Wrote, and In the Heat of the Night, among others. The Astromedics deploys every medical TV cliché under the sun. I mean, I'm surprised they didn't send Rachel to get towels and hot water. There wasn't a whole lot of actual story here. So there was a lot of padding. The father and son storyline with the younger and older doctors really only gets interesting when they have to swap patients later in the story. The younger doctor who has been avoiding treating Devon winds up having to operate on him, and he has to hand off the analysis of what's afflicting the lizard people to his father because he can't figure it out himself. And let's talk about those lizard people. Yikes. For much of the story, presumably because of how far away they are from Medical Module 7, the lizard people's transmissions are scrambled, and you can't see them. Once they're close enough and we get to see the makeup that was done for them, well, 
you kind of realize they were much better off with you couldn't see them, and I'll just leave it at that. There are a few times when the Star Lost almost, almost lives up to its really smart premise. The Astromedics is not one of those times. The acting is not great, not even from the regulars, really. The writing's not great, and there's really nothing to distract you from how cheap it all looks. It just seems like a script from a by-the-books stock medical drama, and not even a particularly good or interesting one, accidentally wound up in the middle of a sci-fi show. Star Trek The Animated Series, Season 1, Episode 13, The Ambergris Element, aired Saturday morning, December 1st, 1973, on NBC. The story so far, the five-year mission of the Federation Starship Enterprise continues with Captain James T. Kirk in command and Mr. Spock, Dr. McCoy, Scotty, Uhura, and the rest of the crew along for the ride, this time with a few new crew members who would have been nearly impossible to show in live action the ambergris element. In orbit of the ocean planet Argo, the Enterprise launches an aqua shuttle, a specialized shuttle carrying Captain Kirk, Dr. McCoy, Mr. Spock, and a red shirt named Lieutenant Clayton. Don't get attached. They're here to study the local life forms, but a rather large local life form wants to study their shuttle by throwing it around a bit. Spock zaps the beast with the aqua shuttle's phasers and it falls back into the water. Well, now's as good a time as any for the shuttle to go into submarine mode and study the creature, which is far larger than any life form the crew expected to find on Argo. But the creature comes to and starts playing fetch with the shuttle again, this time slamming the vehicle into rock outcroppings and causing serious damage. McCoy and Clayton manage to escape and contact the Enterprise to be beamed up, but Kirk and Spock are unconscious. Search parties find the wreckage of the aqua shuttle five days later, and Kirk and Spock are found nearby, face down in the water, but they're still alive. And yet something's wrong. They can't breathe air, and they have webbed fingers. They have to be immersed in water to live. In a water tank in the Enterprise's sickbay, Kirk and Spock are concerned that McCoy can't reverse the changes, and this is something that has been done to them by an intelligent life form. Kirk and Spock have to return to Argo, where they're able to live in the ocean. They meet a group of green-skinned water breathers called Aquans who warn them away. Their presence is not wanted, though they admit that their young saved the interlopers' lives. Kirk and Spock swim their way down to an undersea city, but they're captured by the natives and held for trial. Despite Kirk's insistence that they have come in peace, he and Spock are left to die on the rocks outside the water. Their pleas for mercy don't fall entirely on deaf ears, though, one of the Aquans leads Scotty's search party to Kirk and Spock to save them. Scotty brings bad news. An underwater quake is predicted that could destroy the Aquan civilization. Time is running out to learn from the Aquans how to reverse Kirk and Spock's mutation, and now time is running out to save the Aquans as well. The antidote for Kirk and Spock's condition is found at great risk. It's the venom of the same aquatic beast that wrecked their aqua shuttle. The Enterprise's phasers are used to divert the effects of the quake. With the Enterprise's two top officers restored to health, friendly relations are established with the Aquans, despite all of their initial suspicions. The End 
you know, it's good that none of the Aquans ever felt like something fishy was going on, because really, what would that even mean to a species that lives entirely underwater? Uh, Clayton, I, you know, I, I said don't get attached, and then Clayton surprised me by surviving the whole episode. However, he, he does offer this bit of insight during the uh, scenes where Scotty is leading the search party looking for Kirk and Spock. I see some rocks. And he says this while there's this looping background of rocks scrolling past behind him. Good job, Clayton. Sharp eye. Keep it up, soldier. The nice thing about this story is that it demonstrates a dogged patience for doing the right thing. It'd be easy to tell, uh, and this kind of funny pronunciation, in the show, everyone says Aquans instead of Aquans. Yeah, okay, Aquans. It'd be easy to tell the Aquans off or decide that they're just too willfully ignorant to live. And you know, the tendency to dismiss them that way, that is awfully tempting to do here and now in 2020. And Kirk and Spock have the same problem. They have science on their side. They are trying to warn the Aquans of something that is a great danger to their society, and it's falling on deaf ears. But Kirk and Spock set out not only to save themselves, but the Aquans as well. And some of the Aquans may be ill-informed, but they don't deserve to die. And surely that's something that we're going to have to keep in mind here almost 50 years later, right here on Earth. Orson Welles' Great Mysteries, Episode 14, For Sale, Silence, aired Saturday, December 1st, on Anglia Television, which is now part of ITV. Mr. Pennington and his mistress check into room 21 of the local hotel, unaware that their room is bugged. Cameras, microphones, the works. They get down to business, probably not for the first time, and then they go their separate ways after spending the night together. Pennington arrives at his office at Stafford Electronics, as usual, only to immediately receive a phone call. Meet me tonight at 8 in room 22. You know which hotel. The man he meets there, Hamilton Briggs, is a seedy and rather talkative fellow, and he certainly knows a lot about Pennington, how well-positioned he is at the electronics company, thanks to his marriage, since his in-laws are on the board. He's probably not far away from being president himself, in fact, unless some sort of scandal were to bring all of that to a screeching halt. And that's what Briggs wants to discuss, the cost of keeping things hush-hush. After all, that's what he's offering, to keep the wealth of evidence of Mr. Pennington's sordid tryst under wraps. He wants 10,000 pounds to keep it all quiet, but Pennington says he won't have that kind of cash until he's promoted, so really, if Briggs wants money, it's in his best interest to stay quiet, and finally, they agree on a monthly payment of 250 pounds for seven years. A week later, Briggs is summoned to Pennington's office, and it's a meeting that Pennington assures him he doesn't want to miss. Briggs isn't happy, and he's not going to listen to any begging, any bluffs, or any bulb... Well, anything else starting with a B. Pennington works at an electronics company, but it's one he's already planning to leave because, guess what? He's already in the middle of a divorce. And Pennington reveals that he bugged Briggs just like Briggs bugged him. He knows who else Briggs is trying to extort. He knows enough that he feels that he and Briggs should maybe make an alternative arrangement to the tune of 
Hey, Briggs, why don't you pay me 10,000 pounds? And he knows enough about Briggs' business that he knows he's got that much money. It's a deal, just not the deal that Briggs hoped to make in the beginning. The End Orson Welles' Great Mysteries has been mentioned a couple of times before in Retrogram, and I turned up something interesting since the last time we talked about it. This show did indeed make it to the States, but not always just by way of PBS. Since the origins of many of the show's stories were literature by renowned authors, it also made its way into some schools by way of Encyclopedia Britannica films. Now, This particular episode was based on a story by Don Knowlton that first appeared in the January 1961 issue of Ellery Queen Mystery Magazine. Don died in 1976, just a few years after his story was adapted for television. Jack Cassidy stars as Mr. Pennington. Born in New York, Cassidy was a mainstay of American TV, having already appeared on Wagon Train, Maverick, Hawaiian Eye, I Spy, The Girl from Uncle, Coronet Blue, Get Smart, The Mod Squad, Night Gallery, Mission Impossible, and, of course, Love American Style, to name just a few. He co-starred with Clint Eastwood in The Iger Sanction, and he was probably considered a real get for this show in terms of casting. Sadly, Jack Cassidy died at the age of 49 in 1976 when he fell asleep on his couch with a lit cigarette and set his West Hollywood apartment on fire. He was married for a while to Shirley Jones of Partridge family fame, but she was his second wife. Now here's the coincidence. By his first wife, Jack Cassidy was the father of Shirley's on-screen Partridge family son, David Cassidy. Rona Newton-John stars as the woman, as in the woman with whom Pennington is having his affair. She is the older sister of one Olivia Newton-John, and she was married to Olivia's castmate Jeff Conaway from 1980 through 85. She also appeared in Jerry Anderson's UFO, The Benny Hill Show, The Gold Robbers, and the ITV Sunday Night Theater. Sadly, we lost Rona Newton-John to brain cancer in 2013. She died mere weeks after receiving her diagnosis. Like most episodes of this anthology series, the beauty is in the brevity, and this is a marvelously compact piece of storytelling that doesn't sacrifice coherence. It would be easy to do this as a stage play. It really did strike me as a two-act play with a nice economy of storytelling and dialogue. I did like the subtle ways that the story showed us that Briggs and the hotel receptionist were in this together. She was feeding him information on visitors to the hotel who seemed like they were exploitable, and he in turn was cutting her in on whatever money he was making from extorting, presumably, a lot more people than just Pennington. And all of this has gotten across without a single word of dialogue. That's a nice example of that economy of storytelling I mentioned earlier. That's a lot of variety for one Saturday, plus the previous Monday in the case of Robert's Robots. Just an example of that was what was great about Saturday morning TV of that era, is there was so much variety to be found. The Retrogram podcast was researched, written, and hosted by Earl Green. The show's theme music was composed and performed by Jazar and licensed under Creative Commons. You can find his work at betterwithmusic.com and at freemusicarchive.org. If you like Retrogram, give a big thanks to thelogbook.com's Patreon supporters. If you love Retrogram, 
join them in helping out and pitching in just a little bit. Every little bit helps keep the logbook.com and its podcast and video casts going. You can be like Kevin and Darwin and Javier and sign up as a patron at patreon.com slash the logbook. You can also support the site by buying t-shirts, mugs, shower curtains, and and face masks. We now have face masks and other goodies from our store at thelogbook.redbubble.com, including brand new designs to show your love for Retrogram. And you can order all sorts of things through our affiliate links at thelogbook.com slash store from places like Amazon and eBay. And if you need to catch up on Star Trek Discovery or Star Trek Picard, you can sign up for a free week of CBS All Access through our links. And if you decide to stay as a subscriber, that helps the logbook and Retrogram out a lot. Retrogram is a production of thelogbook.com.